Good morning and welcome everyone. My name is Sherry Hills and I'm the Manager of Research at the OMDC. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the final of the three Digital Dialogue Breakfasts that we'll be hosting here in Toronto for 2017. For those of you who don't know the OMDC, we're an economic development agency of the Government of Ontario and our mandate is to build Ontario's creative economy, which contributes over $17 billion to the provincial economy and generates nearly 215,000 jobs. In June of this year, we released our new five-year strategic plan, Lead, Connect, Grow, which lays out our vision, our mission, and our values that will guide us over the next five years. We've also created an interactive infographic that summarizes the key points to our plan. You can find both the plan and the infographic on the news and publications page at omdc.on.ca. Our digital dialogue breakfast series brings together people from different creative media industries to discuss topics that are of interest across the industries. We're hoping that this morning you'll meet some new people or reconnect with people you haven't seen for a while and get some useful takeaways to start ideas percolating. This morning's topic is going global. Ontario content creators understand that relying on revenue from the Canadian market alone limits growth and opportunities for collaboration. Our moderator and panelists will explore ways to prepare international strategies and speak to such topics as finding collaborators and relationship building, uh, taking advantage of government priorities, treaties and missions, and planning for market readiness. We're pleased to have Jeffrey Crossman, Deputy Director and Regional Officer of the Trade Commissioner Service, Ontario Region of Global Affairs Canada, with the Government of Canada here today to moderate our panel. Our industry panelists today are Maria Armstrong, CEO and Executive Producer, Big Coat Media, Karen Burzma, Publisher, Owl Kids Books, and Anne Loy, Executive Vice President, Global Operations with DHX Media. And now over to our moderator, uh, Jeffrey Crossman is based in Toronto. He's the Trade Commissioner covering, covering Creative Industries. He has worked as a Cultural Trade Commissioner at the Consulate General of Canada in New York and the High Commission of Canada in London. Jeffrey has been working to support the arts and culture industries since 1992. Please join me in welcoming Jeffrey Crossman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Good morning, everyone. Um, Yes, my name is Jeffrey Crossman, Cultural Trade Commissioner. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with the Trade Commissioner Service, uh, in a nutshell, we help Canadian companies export. And in my case, I help Canadian cultural entrepreneurs export. Um, I am one, uh, we have offices across Canada and as well as in 150 uh, consulates, embassies, high commissions abroad. Uh, Cultural trade was um, one of the priorities in, 19, in 2002 when I was posted to New York. It was part of something called the Trade Routes Program. Some of you may be familiar with that. Um, it was wound down in 2008. And in some of the recent budget uh, announcements, if that's something that you read, uh, they have announced that uh, the government is reviewing trade routes as well as ProMarked. Uh, I can say at this time that uh, 16 new uh, officers have been hired at posts uh, outside of Canada. And uh, as many of you probably listened to uh, Minister Jolie's uh, speech a few Thursdays ago, the discussion about a new export, um, cultural export uh, strategy. So stay tuned. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. Uh, I work at Global Affairs Canada. If you don't know what that is, that's the old defate. We keep changing the name, but some of the people stay the same. Um, I'd like to introduce our panelists today. Uh, Maria, to my left, uh, is CEO and executive producer at Big Coat Media. Uh, she produces Love It or List It. It's on HGTV Canada, HGTV US, as well as in 149 territories around the world. Karen uh, is publisher at Owl Kids Books. Owl Kids Books uh, has over 35 years of its children's publishing, uh, including high-quality books and I think three magazines, different age groups. Uh, and then Anne is executive vice president at DHX Media. Uh, their properties you will probably be familiar with include uh, Inspector Gadget, Teletubbies, uh, Kalu, yes, and Degrassi. And they also have studios for live action, animation, and uh, games, interactive media. Yes. Correct? Mm -hmm. Great. So the topic is going global, so that's something of interest to me and to our panelists. Uh, 
All of them have success in going global, and the idea today is for them to share their successes and also maybe their, uh, their strategies and uh, things that they came up against uh, with you, just to give you an idea, and maybe that can inform your export strategy or how you will uh, take your content and export it outside of Canada. So um, maybe, speaking of strategies, I'd uh, like to hear from you guys on what was your strategy? How did you pick your uh, foreign market that you wanted to target or territory? And then how did you implement it? What was your tactical plan in leading up to that? Do you want to take it, uh, Maria, I didn't maybe have first? A plan. Oh, you didn't have a plan? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to disappoint you, but I didn't have a plan. Um, we did, uh, I, I tease, we did have somewhat of a plan. I mean, when we actually work on all of our programs and we got lucky enough to uh, hit with Love It All Listed, but all, all of our projects, we one of the key things that we look for is that it has to be accessible worldwide. It has to have, be able to relate to the audience worldwide. And I know that that's a, a pretty big um, idea, but that was what we wanted so we believe that our audiences around the world, because we have managed to do that, um, need to be able to see themselves in the program. So that's one of our things that, and we got lucky with Love It All Listed. We, we really did. We had a Canadian broadcaster that really believed in the show. Um, it went for five seasons in Canada, and then we moved into the United States. And our biggest challenge in the United States was holding on to our IP. And we did, we did hold on to it. We refused to give it up. And it was a gamble because it was either walk away or give them the IP. We decided that we were going to walk away and it paid off for us and the show, because the show was a hit. But it was in, in, essential for us to hold on to that. Otherwise, we would lose control. We would lose everything that we had worked so hard to do. Um, Every show that we do, we will try and hold on to our IP. It's getting more and more difficult, but it was essential for us to hang on to that creatively. Uh, for Elle, Elle started publishing books. We've been publishing magazines for, as Jeffrey said, over 35 years. Books we've been doing for about eight, nine years. And from the very start when the company decided to... Um, get back into the book business, uh, there was never a question that we were going to be looking at international markets. And for us, the biggest one and the most obvious one is the US. So we don't actually really differentiate between the US and Canada, even though the US is an export market. We publish all of our books simultaneously in the US and Canada. We use American spelling. We, we to some degree, keep the U.S. market in mind when we're making choices about certain certain topics and certain language. So we do. The story is always the most important thing, um, but we do much as you do. Look to make sure that our our content works as as well as possible for an international market. After the U.S., um, we do do a great deal of about fifteen percent of our revenues come from the international market outside the U.S., uh, and we do keep that in mind as well when we're choosing illustrators, when we're thinking about projects, how they might work. We, you know, we make our choices initially based on the U.S. and Canada. It's got to work for that market because that is by far the largest part. Uh, but after that, we do, we do try to keep it in mind. Curious, do you uh, export finished product to the U.S.? To the U.S., yeah. Okay, but the other 15% you license? We license, and sometimes we do, so we do license, but there's two ways you can, with books, you can either do a co-production, so we can produce the books for the other company, which is always nice because you maintain control, mm -hmm. you know exactly how many books they have, um, <laughs> and you, you make more money, quite honestly. You make more money for yourself, you make more money for your creators, uh, so we always do that when we can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of our strategies was when we started focusing on that was to move up our, our internal production schedules so that we would have a bigger gap between when the book was finished and when we actually published it. So we would have time to get publishers uh, to run on to our printing. So thank you. And with uh, yeah, at DHX, at, at DHX I, I, we're really fortunate because we we focus on kids and families. So the younger, 
the younger the age range that you focus on, the more international by nature our content would be anyways. So, so when we are doing, when we're looking at a property that are in the sort of the, the preschool area, um, it tends to be slightly easier to produce for a worldwide audience. I think the challenge is really providing we're platform agnostic. We don't care if the, the content, wherever, whether it's linear or digital or, you know, SVOD, AVOD, that is, that is not, um, that's not the primary concern, but it's more, you know, do we have the, do we hit the right tone uh, for that age group? So when we look at preschool or even uh, early school age, it's pretty easy to go to an international partner to to, and, and it's not really a, a cultural conversation per se, but more is the content right? Is the content engaging? Is the content the, um, you know, the, the, the type of things that whoever we're looking to, to partner with us happen to be looking for? So that, that tends to be uh, fairly simple. Uh, but as you get to the older age range, when we get to the teens and tweens content, that becomes a, a bit harder. The shelf life is definitely much shorter. You tend to deal with more contemporary issues that are by nature, very different from country to country, so that 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 becomes a little harder. Um, but but there are some common commonality with all teenagers around the world what they have to deal with, I suppose. So so um, you know we we're a bit more careful in choosing the topics that we would produce for, uh, in, in that sense. But in terms of a plan, um, I think when we started, when the company started, it was always um, not about just um, selling this in Canada. It's, it was always, you know, develop and produce with the global audience in mind. So we, we haven't had to run into the make it in Canada then, then worry about the rest of the world thing. We were always culturally and just our philosophical approach was always a global audience. And when you're in kids and family content, it does, you know, it's, it's a little easier. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, in the Trade Commissioner Service, uh, my colleagues dealing with other sectors of the economy, uh, be it ICT, health sciences, um, manufacturing, uh, the normal uh, trajectory is for a company to set up, let's think of manufacturing, uh, manufacture their widgets in Canada, sell to the Canadian market, and then start to export, and then choose markets one at a time and, and expand globally that mm -hmm. way. But there's an expression that we use, and it's called born global. And I have a feeling that that applies to almost all uh, of our creative industries because you really can't recoup your costs uh, just on the Canadian market. Mm -hmm. So keeping that in mind, and uh, maybe going back to Anne, uh, you mentioned uh, themes and topics. What about localization and translation? Uh, I mean, translation is very direct, but I mean, then there's localization in terms mm -hmm. of values, uh, ethics, things that may touch on a different uh, culture. How do you take that into account with uh, your properties? Um, our content are pretty much dubbed worldwide, so mm -hmm. that's that hasn't been a big problem. And when, when if if it's a very say musically driven um, content, that's a little bit harder. Um, then you start getting into the real nuances of different languages. Um, but there's also a lot of countries want to. A lot of parents in, in non-speaking, non-English speaking country who want their kids to watch some television in English. Oh, really? So we're running okay. into a little bit of that. I mean, there was a series that, you know, accidental, really. You know, it, it, we thought it was a, a literacy uh, property. And we thought, OK, we're going to be we're going to be selling this to English speaking countries only mm -hmm. because it's learning how to read and, and speak English, but um, we ended up selling it to multiple non-English speaking countries because they the, there are some programs that they actually want to have to teach their kids. I mean, English be, being such a global language that some countries actually want that. So you never really know, and, and, and it doesn't really have to be dubbed, um, mm -hmm. depending on what you're making. So it wasn't planned, but it turned out okay for us. And, and I think we see more and more of that as well, is that people, especially countries like China, they actually want, they want it dubbed, but they also want it um, uh, subtitled Subtitle. sometimes. Okay. It's just because they want that variety of, depending on where they're going to put it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've found the same thing, mm -hmm. um, especially in Asia, where mm -hmm. we'll license in addition to, say, a Chinese publisher or a Korean publisher, and they'll absolutely do a translation. 
and they'll translate it into their language. But then they will also often ask us for the rights to do a bilingual edition, and they'll do a Korean English edition or a Chinese English edition. And again, I think it's because, especially in, in Asia, there is a real desire on the part of parents for their kids to grow up knowing some English. So they're very interested in making that happen, and the publishers are responding to that. Um, for us, in terms of localization, obviously, when we license a book, it's the company we license to that takes care of the translation. We do not get involved in that. We do not vet the translations. Well, you don't. Oh, no, because it would be very difficult to. Right. So there's, you know, lots of language in our contracts that stipulates that they can't make any substantive changes. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Yes. Uh, for instance, localization, would yes. they maybe change a little bit of the plot or remove something that might they, be offensive? They might come back and ask us. So there, there have been instances where we have had a request to change. If it's a nonfiction book, you know, could we add some examples specifically for our country or our territory? <laughs> And, you know, we always go back to the author uh, in a situation like that and make sure that they're comfortable with it. And in that case, we do, we do require them to submit the text in English before, before. we give okay. approval for them to go ahead. Um, we have had situations with a lot of our books are illustrated. We've had a number of situations where publishers have said, we love the content of the book. The illustrations don't work for our market can we buy the text only and do our own illustrations? And we will, again, with the author's approval, we'll, we'll allow that to happen, but we do, as a rule, um, make sure that they, they have to run the choice of illustrator by us, and we okay. do reserve the right to see the illustrations and make sure that they're not off-brand, as it were. Right. Um, and then the other thing is, is that uh, if you have and it's probably the same for, for TV series in this way. Um, if you have a book series that has, is character-driven, uh, it's a good thing to think about names. And if you think that it might have potential to become an international brand, possibly keeping the name the same in all territories. I used to, um, I used to work at Kids Camp Press, so I managed the Franklin brand for a very long time. And when that, when that series started, it was just one book. So when they licensed that book to different territories, it was Benjamin in, in Quebec, it was Morton in Denmark, uh, Conrad in Sweden, I believe. And when we got to the point that there were 15 books and Nelvana licensed the TV rights and there was gonna be a series and there were gonna be international sales, we had to go back to those partners and say, hi, we know you've been publishing it under this name, would you mind? And we were successful in getting most of the partners to change. The only place where it remained uh, a different name was, was Quebec, was French Canada. So in the Canadian licensing, it was tricky because we had, for all of the merchandise, we had dual name tags with you know Franklin. And not only did we have them in French and English, but we had Franklin and Benjamin as well. So right. something to think about. Even so if you don't think something is going to become a global yeah. series, uh, you know, because there's 60 million copies of those books in print worldwide. So, so going back to the born global, you have to think globally even yeah. when you're developing. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. No pegs for Middle Eastern countries. Pardon me? No pegs for Middle Eastern countries. That's a character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We, we provide textless masters in the original one, and uh, the show is either dubbed or um, in English language, depending on where it is. Um, and uh, we also, as far as our formats are concerned, we have a lot of control over the format. Uh, any changes that are made to the format. And there was actually a number that was made in England. Maybe just uh, describe about licensing a format. So yes. we license our formats through um, our distributor. And a country who has bought our show and it is doing successfully for them want to do their own local version. And right now they're doing one in England, which is in its third season. And they wanted to make some changes uh, based on the format. And we agreed it was not a big deal. Um, Australia uh, kept it completely the same, with the exception of, of the hosts. They decided to have two male hosts rather than a male and a female, and we didn't care. And uh, Quebec has, uh, they were the ones that actually didn't ask us anything, which is really interesting, even though contractually they're supposed to. But every country that has bought the format 
has come forward and, and shown us uh, casting tapes, um, and we get on the phone with them. We uh, vet their first five episodes to make sure that it stays within brand. And as far as the name, it changes with whichever country. Right. Um, and in Latin America, we dub it into Spanish, both versions, the Vancouver version and the uh, and the new uh, new uh, North Carolina version, um, and um, then we also do it in English in Spain, and they subtitle it. In Spain, it's probably one of their top rated shows. So it's which uh, is weird. Spain. Yeah, I know. So cool. English broadcast uh, or English language, but with Spanish subtitles. Yes, so and even we give them markets. both. We okay. give them both, and they can make a choice. Techless, the Techless Masters, they can put on whatever they want, um, providing that it stays within the content of the mm -hmm. show. Going back, I'm just curious. Could you give an example of, of, of a request to change the format, even if it was minor, just um, to give an idea yeah, of localization? In, in England, the pacing was extremely slower, <laughs> and. Um, Christy didn't want to do, um, she wanted to use all of the old stuff in the house and refurbish it rather than um, buy new stuff, which was a, a, quite a bit different from what we were doing. Um, there were some format changes as far as how the real estate agent showed the houses. It was also just the way that they edited it. Um, and it worked better for the British market, okay. and so that that that's fine. Um, Still a, remained on brand. Yes, okay. absolutely, absolutely. Excellent. Same title. Oh, as well. Great. Yeah. Um, thinking of uh, international markets, uh, book fairs, uh, festivals, conferences. Uh, maybe thinking about where you plan your year, uh, where you would recommend people to go, why, and um, maybe what are the differences in, in these different markets, fairs, book fairs, conferences. Uh, do you want to start with maybe Maria? Um, I guess it depends on who this person is. If it's a television producer that has shows that they want to sell, mm -hmm. I would look at real screen. Um, I would look at... Um, Probably most of these markets are relationship building. You don't normally close deals from a television point of view there, unless you're a ma major distributor like DHX would probably close deals on distributing. But as a producer, you're going out to pitch your, your shows, um, but you're very rarely going to close a deal there. So I would suggest the two real screens, the one in Washington in January and the one in Los Angeles in June. Um, I also go to... Just to um, say, those are television and, television. That, and that's factual television. Factual television. Um, and I also go to primetime in Ottawa. But I also go to the MIP markets. And this year I went to MIP China, which was really interesting as a producer who wants to co-produce. And I'm looking at going to MIP Cancun, which is also um, about co-producing. And every other year I go to MIP in Cannes. So those are the markets that I go to to continue my relationships with buyers. Could you maybe go into a little bit more detail on that? How do you prepare for the market? Uh, when do you start preparing? When you're there, uh, what is the activities that you normally... Uh, and then what's your follow-up afterwards? In the real screen ones, we, we're, we've been preparing for the last six months, and it's basically putting our pitches together, putting our screenings together. And we try not to overwhelm our buyers. We go and we'll talk about ideas that we have. If they seem interested in one of the ideas that we have, then yes, we'll launch into a full presentation. But usually it's about letting them know what we're doing, what we have on our slate, something that may work for that and it, it's meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting and then follow up when we get back we give them about three weeks to digest and then we go back in and talk to them again or we get on a plane and go and meet them face to face in New York or Los Angeles in MIP it really is about relationships it's really about so meeting people okay. having dinners having a glass of wine it's not all fun um, it's wandering around the bunker, <laughs> looking yeah. at, at what else is going on around the world and what is popular. So it's about research as well. Right. 
Karen, I know that you just came back from Frankfurt. Are you still jet lagged? I am still a little jet lagged. Um, Just again, um, maybe the fairs, but also your preparation before, what to expect, what are the kinds of activities that go on, and then your follow up. Sure. Um, Well, I'll just talk about Frankfurt first then. So, Frankfurt is a major international book fair. About 170,000 people attend from 150 countries. Uh, all types of books, so children's books, adult books, fiction, nonfiction. Um, it also serves for the German publishers. It also serves as an actual um, book public book fair on the weekends. They open it up to to the public, which is crazy. Uh, there's a lot of cosplay going on. There's a lot of like it's. They sell a ton of books to the public, which is amazing to see. Like it's actually very heartening. Um, but for the three or four days before that, it's we're in meetings. Yeah. It's trade only, and we're in meetings, much like I imagine you would be, from you know nine in the morning until six at night, every half hour, meeting with a different publisher from a different country, and then in the evenings, probably having a glass of wine with someone, possibly having dinner with someone, uh, and again, it is it is all about relationships. Yeah. We're not necessarily going to close any deals there, but. We are always trying to meet as many people, you know, continue to build relationships that we have, but also to to foster new ones. So to make that happen, we start our preparation probably. So Frankfurt's in October. We probably start doing our first, probably get our first appointment request in June. And then July. That many months before. That many months before. For a half hour meeting. For a half hour meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And we literally, we have a list that we go through, and we basically highlight everybody that we want to meet with, and kind of our A list of, like, these are the people we really want to meet with, and then we put together a schedule, and our sales coordinator starts starts emailing, and it just builds from there. And we're probably adding people up until the week before we go, um, because, you know, some people don't attend every fair, some people may drop out at the last minute, some people may already have their schedule full. So you're constantly kind of looking like who else, because my, my colleague Judy will tell you, I do not believe in breaks. So <laughs> I, to my mind, a good day is a day where there's no time for lunch, except for a, you know, power bar at your stand, um, which, because it's, they're expensive to attend. Yeah. You know, so, and we do it. Every t- minute. Every minute, every one. minute counts. So we do a ton of research as well. So when we sit down with somebody in a meeting, we know who they are. We know what kind of books they publish. We know what we think we want to pitch to them. So based on what we see, you know, based on what we know of them, based on what we see in their catalog, we know both from our library and from our new con- like new books what we think we want to pitch. So then the flip side of that is probably the second most important thing is to listen because often when you sit down with somebody and you say, so tell me what's going on in your market, you know, how are things, how's business, what are you looking for? You find that in fact, what you thought was the right thing to present to them, in fact, it's not. And so you just have to pivot a little bit. So listening, I think is one of the most important. Body language. Oh, well, yes. And I will say that for, I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but I can tell within about three seconds when I put a book in front of somebody because the illustrations are the first things people respond to. And it's either going to work for them or it's not. Yeah. And if it's not, it's like, okay, next. next it's, it's, it's almost identical. Yeah. Yeah. Your book okay. is it's yeah. almost identical. Yeah. And there's no point in trying to convince somebody to just because you love a project and just because you think it's right for them. There's, there's no point in trying to convince somebody. Yeah. What I will say, though, is that if you meet the next year with somebody from the same company and it's a different editor or it's a different producer, that's a chance to repitch. Yeah. Okay. Because that person, it's six months later, it's, you know, a different person, the market may have changed. So we, I, you know, like you guys, we pitch our library, we take everything, we go back it's as no far. Yeah. No different. Yeah. And again, seeing oh. <laughs> your experiences yeah. in different markets. And For sure. Well, we're also, we're both buyers and sellers. So, okay, right. so when we go to some of these markets, it's, you know, three, four different prong approach. And then we do think global and local at the same time. Um, and we do split up uh, with our, with our library sales um, tend to have the big meetings, but then the local follow-ups are absolutely mm. critical as well as for us. So, so, 
in, in case uh, some of you don't know, we have several lines of business. So our television channel tend to, uh, they're the buyers. They're one of the buyers. So um, they have sort of Canadian supply program, but the, in a big schedule, they're always looking for other programmings at different price points that will complement our current schedule. So our TV guys would, would go to the same market as, as we do, but they are buying. So th their meetings are much different. Their meeting are, they have pretty much set out what their strategy would be for the next two years and what kind of holes they're trying to, to plug. And they're looking specific for those programs. So they sit, um, so we just came out of a, a big market, MIP Junior and MIPCOM. They sit on a weekend and screen um, people's submissions and then have meetings with them to talk about whether some of the program will fit their, their schedule. So, so they, they do a lot of their prep really um, early on when they set their broadcast schedule of what they're looking for for the next two years. Um, so that's one line of business. Then we have our you know, sort of original development business. So that's a lot of uh, you know, pitching the concept to big partners. So the Disney, the cartoons, the, the, the uh, Nickelodeon to find a, a major international partner to kind of get to, uh, to put the projects together. Um, Co-production. So a lot of that is um, bringing new concept, new development materials to the market, sensing. So that was, is, to us, market intelligence is probably the most important thing coming out of these markets is what do people have? What else are people developing? Uh, when you're having a meeting with a major buyer, you you know, most of the people, most of our guys already know what's in their schedule, what's coming up and what they have purchased so that we don't double pitch things that, you know, all they're going to do is say, well, I've got, I already got one of these. I don't need another one. Um, so, so being prepared to know almost every meeting walking, because we only have half an hour. You don't have time to pitch something that you know that they're not going to like. So it's very, very focused, focused that way. Um, and then, of course, then there's our library sales, which is taking our entire library. And that tend to be more general. Uh, some of the smaller territories, they look for a bigger basket and to, to, to uh, fill out their schedule. So, um, so that tends to be another sort of kind of uh, uh, avenue for us to, to be at market. So for, for kids, uh, television anyways, um, February Kid Screen and uh, October MIP Junior, MIPCOM are our two anchor markets. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm saying about the locally is in between these two markets, all of our people go into the local territory and meet with people at their offices okay. to follow up to all that. Not so, just reliant on the, the, no. the fairs, but also no. direct Absolutely. Meetings. So so do we close any deals um, at the market? I think I would I would characterize as a we move things forward. So, mm -hmm. so there's seldom anything that we do in the market that are brand new that people have never seen before. It's just moving that forward. Uh, we always prep by ahead of time before even the market, sending people, here's what we're presenting in the market, have a look, so that when you do have that half an hour, suss out the people actually kind of have a, taken a look at what you've sent them already. And then that conversation would be different than someone who hasn't seen it. Um, and, then, and then as far as development and co-production is concerned, you know, we say we're global and Skype and all that's wonderful, but there's always misunderstanding when you're doing phone calls and emails and all that. So it's a really good opportunity for us to meet with either potential co-producer or existing co-producer to say, okay, we're stuck on whatever we're stuck on. And that face-to-face -face meeting actually help us move things forward. So I find, personally, I find that very important for us. That's a lot of what I, I do when I'm at the markets um, is, is, is just moving things forward and, and, the deal closing maybe a month or two months after that, but it was it would it often is a critical time for us to sort of clear whatever misunderstanding or confusion or whatever that we have, and that face to face things is fairly fairly important. So that's the TV side of the the mm -hmm. market, and then we also have a, a pretty big now pretty big licensing business as okay. well. So the two big market is uh, well, actually there are several, but I would say the the make big market will be BLE, which actually just happened before um, before MIPCOM. It's, uh, it's more the European uh, licensing show. And then in May, uh, we would have a, uh, the, the, uh, the um, expo, which is in Vegas. That's a, a very big, big um, show for us as well. So those two tend to, that follows retail of a calendar uh, when they're when they are you know taking toys out for the holidays Christmas and all that and that you pl plan two years in advance so some of the stuff 
-hmm. We're talking 19, 2020 now. Cool. You could spend your entire life on the road. For right. sure. <laughs> it, it's and a key is to, to make sure that you're productive there and then things are about following up afterwards. That's what I'm getting the, uh, all of you have similar. It's, it's preparation long Absolutely. in advance Very and then it's relationships. Uh, maintaining them, building them face to face, mm -hmm. and uh, with regard to moving things forward and not necessarily closing the deal. So, not to be afraid that, I mean, just building the relationship and then following up afterwards. It's mm -hmm. important so. to build relationships because no matter who you're, no matter what kind of industry you're in, they want to know that they can rely on you to mm -hmm. actually deliver. And mm -hmm. if, and relationships are really important that can't just walk in and expect somebody to go sure that's great yeah. you you have to and follow up research follow up, follow up is, is so important that's a, after. After. yeah that's yeah. a great point i find that um, now with the, some of the bigger buyers like new players like netflix and hulu and amazon um, they are platform owners and they see themselves a platform owner they might try to do a bit of editorial participation but they tend to like i'm a platform we're getting people to come in and watch. They they drive they thrive on data, mm -hmm. and they thrive on you know other people being be, be reliable to deliver the program that yes. they've spent a ton of money on. So so there's a lot of conversation about. Oh, I love this idea from this little tiny producer, but we don't think they can execute. Can you like is the, so? There's a lot of that kind of go goes on as is as a bigger company. Can we help? some of the smarter producers to deliver and get their content onto the bigger platform yeah. as well. So Before we go to questions, maybe one from the audience, one last one. Uh, at these trade shows, these markets, these fairs, um, have do you, uh, different models can be walking the floor, taking meetings on the side, another model can be uh, booking, or booking a, a stand and then having your own stand, but there's also a lot of these markets have Canada stands. I'm thinking Telefilm, uh, mm -hmm. Does that uh, the Association for the Export of oh, sorry uh, books Leave Book Leave Canada? Canada yes. Sorry, I'm using the old name. Uh, does that for books? Uh, even music, SEMA uh, uh, does Canada stands. Uh, have you ever? How do you approach? Have you availed yourself of the Canada branding? Um, does that work for you? Does it? I help? haven't. Okay. I haven't. Um, uh, it's. Do you have your own booth? Or no. Do you, no. No. Okay, I, so I float. Purely, okay. I go from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. Because the people that I'm meeting actually usually have their own booth or they usually have their own meeting room. Mm -hmm. And it's more convenient for me to go to them because I'm a seller. Right. I'm not a buyer. Right. Yeah. For us, we yeah. we always have a booth. It can Your either, own booth? Uh, sometimes it's our own booth in Bologna. We have our own, we have our own stand mm -hmm. um, in Frankfurt. We have our own stand. It's on the Canada stand. Like okay. It's part of the right. Canadian collective stand. Mm -hmm. But it's very much our own stand. We have a lot of books. And that's still the best way for us, still the best way to sell something to somebody is to actually show them the physical book. Yeah. Um, you know, you can Tangible. do it on an iPad as well, but, and people come to us. So the, the model is that editors, editors and publishers walk the floor mm -hmm. and we sit and they come to us and we sell to them. Interesting. See the yeah. difference Different. in, yes. But it might be, if I was going to a new market, so if I was going someplace first where time. I hadn't been before, first yeah. time, I'd probably float. Float. I'd That's probably float and I'd good. probably spend yeah. a lot of time Walk just walking around trying to figure out who was who and who are the people that I need to try to get in touch with? Yeah. So it it's it's a little different depending, I think, on on what your goal right. is. Well, that's good advice, I think, for anyone. Uh, you know, walk yeah. the floor the in the first time, couple of years, sure. get the feel of the place, yeah. and then move yeah. your way along. Yeah, and know that you know, even if you have a meeting with somebody one the first year that you're kind of like, well, there wasn't really much happening there. It doesn't mean you shouldn't meet with them again. again. It takes time to build those relationships, and it mm -hmm. takes time for people to get to know you, for sure. And yeah. wear comfortable shoes. And yes. Wear comfortable shoes. <laughs> yes. A lot of water. Yeah. A lot of water. Drink a lot of water. Well, uh, in the early days of, of DHX, definitely we took advantage of the Canada stand at Vietnam. And, and yeah. it's, it was great because just, you know, everybody know the Canada yeah. stand. Like, everybody knows it. So mm -hmm. so when you say, meet me there, it's... It becomes a people, point of reference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think that, that I think the, the effort on our export, our government's effort in export has really helped in that sense um, in in the in our early days, for sure. And, mm -hmm. and I see a lot of, you know, newer producer coming up, really taking advantage of that. I think that's really great. We, we can't really 
do that anymore. Um, um, we just, wear the Canadian flag proudly. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it, we just can't. Yeah, yeah, we just we just can't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But uh, um, and it, depending on your role within our company, there are different. You know, going to the stand. You know, walking the the floor and all that. I mean, I can tell you, my boss, he just have to walk down the corset and he get twenty meetings. Yeah. You know, set up. So it's a different approach yeah. to to also where to you are in the, the the life cycle of your company. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Because I know, sure. just as an example, uh, Reaper Bond is a, um, a music festival, and Canada was the feature country. And so they put together a lot of uh, planning. And I see Kate uh, in the crowd, and she gave me this uh, great book on reading in Canada. Canada will be the featured company at Frankfurt 2020. So they're already, you're planning now on getting the word out. Wow. So mm-hmm. I think now we'll, we'll turn it over to a QA uh, in the crowd. Do we, who has the microphones? I see Sherry. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. Is David allowed to ask questions? Oh, can you uh, please introduce yourself, uh, your, your name and uh, organization? Oh, well, okay. Uh, David, Don't you yes. know everything? David, already, David? We'll have scotch uh, later. Uh, just a question. Anne mentioned Netflix, uh, Amazon, Hulu. I, and I don't know if there's a publishing counterpart uh, uh, to this, but it, at least for film and TV, there's this proliferation now of over-the-top services like Netflix, and it looks like they're now, uh, on your theme of going global, they are all uh, have announced plans to go global. So Netflix is global. The others are now following. Disney's announced that it's launching new services that hopes to go global. CBS is coming to Canada. Amazon Prime is in Canada. So how is this going to affect your strategy going forward if you kind of fast forward uh, 10 years and you have a multiplicity of these services, over-the-top services, uh, that are in markets all over the world and are approaching people and saying, give me the world rights, give me the global rights to your, to your product. Does this mean less trips to markets? What's going to happen? Yeah, I can stay home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's a great question, and we, all, we are all looking at that. And yes, you're right, David. I mean, there's going to come a time where we are going to produce for those over-the-top you know, entities, and we're not going to have to go out of the country. Um, But, you know, there still is going to be other broadcasters as well. And also, I think the deals that these Netflix and Hulus are making, they only want to hang on to those, from what I understand, and the the, the deals that I've talked to them, they only want to hang on to the rights for a couple of years, and then they're going to give them back to the producer. So there's still going to be opportunities. Strategically, we're going to sell it to the world and then take it back and go out and market it again because there's always a market later on. Just, you know, there's always a market. I wish I could see into the future, because then I would be able to retire. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Is it on? Yes. Yes. Your your name and organization. Yes. I'm Rick Wilkes, and I'm from Anik Press, and I have a question primarily for Karen. Sure. Okay. So, Karen, Regoing global and developing projects, it's a quick two-part question. Um, when you're putting a book together and you have to acquire components for it, say photography, um, are you likely to clear worldwide rights in anticipation of going global, or do you leave that and let the acquiring publisher worry about it? That's part one. Okay. So we've done, we've done both. We, have, we don't do a ton of photographic books for that reason because it's a pain in... Us, frankly, um, <laughs> just saying. Uh, but we—it's expensive. So if you want to acquire world rights for for photographs, it's quite expensive, and you don't know that you're actually going to be able to recoup, make any sales, and recoup any of that cost. So our tendency is to not to do that. But then we have very, very, very elaborate grid spreadsheets where we track everything so that we know that if we do have an opportunity to make a sale that we can either clear those rights for the publisher or usually just give them that grid and say, over to you, you've got to re-clear for your territory. So. Uh, and the second part is, if you're requiring from an agent, they're often happy to give North American rights and not global rights. So how hard might you push to secure global rights? Depends on how big I think the opportunity is internationally. So it depends on the project. If it's an illustri- if it's a picture book, I will almost always say I'm not taking it unless you give me world rights because 
if you've got a text and you've got to illustrate, like you can't, if they keep the text rights, then, and I have the illustration rights, it's really hard to try to say to another publisher, you have to buy the text from the agent over here, but you can buy the illustrations from me. So it complicates matters. And I find most agents are amenable to that on illustrated books. On fiction, it really, it really depends on, one, how much you're willing to pay. Because if you want world rights, they're going to want more money. Um, so it really comes down to, I don't have a hard and fast rule. I kind of go back and forth. I recently had a book where the agent wanted me to buy world rights and she had a UK publisher interested. So she's like, well, we can do it one of two ways. You can buy world rights and license to them, or you can just take North America and they'll take the rest of the world. Or it's like, or they can take the world and I'll like buy North America from them. Because frankly, that way they have all the development costs. They have all of that, and I'll just take North America. That's fine. I, it, so it's very situational for me. Yeah. Question over here. Hi. Um, Peter Miller. I'm a communications lawyer here in Toronto. I'm interested in pursuing a bit more this question of how going global affects creative. You've talked about changing names. You've talked about localization. But I'm wondering if, for example, you get pitch projects where you say, no, it won't work internationally. It's too Canadian. I'm wondering whether it's actually easier now to have stuff that's distinctly Canadian, shot in Toronto, Newfoundland, wherever, and export it. Just that whole area. That's interesting. So um, the impact of exporting on content development. Who wants to start? The content that we create tend to, it's hard to tell, you know, how you know, how Canadian it, it actually is. So we don't tend to run into issues like that. It was more, it's, it's more topical and the creative side of that, of whether that will work around the world. Uh, the way we're organized at DHX, which may be different from, from other production or media company, we sit around the table and the distribution side of the business drive a lot of the conversation of what actually the international buyers are looking for or, or that the feedback that they will give us on sort of first round pitches. So we're constantly tweaking to make sure that appeals to as many sort of those audiences as possible. But I, I, would, I would also say too that, that there's a limit to that. I think sometimes when you try so hard to appease everybody, it kind of water down your creative as well. So we're constantly looking at that, making sure we don't do that. You know, we, we make enough that not every single show has to appeal to every single, you know, audience or, or platform. So we try to make sure we have coverage. And a lot of what we look at in any sort of development slate is have we got that coverage from age range, genre, platform, um, topics, all of that. So it's important that, you know, even to, to David's questions, you, you know, you don't want all your shows with Netflix. You want it yeah. sort of in different places um, just sort of to make sure that you've got a good right, a basket of rights left at the end of all of this. And, and that's kind of the key of going global is that you do have those, you know, rights mm-hmm. within your control to, to go there. I'm thinking, um, just well, I was going to ask Maria uh, about how uh, uh, Love It or List It do you hide the fact that it's no. Vancouver? Do no. you no, no, promote no. it? Uh, I, don't, I don't think anything is too Canadian. And I'm, believe me, I'm originally from England, so I have nothing <laughs> to... Um, as far as I'm concerned, it's about the story. And so it, it, it shouldn't, whether it's too Canadian or not, we don't hide the fact that it's Vancouver. We actually show the mountains and um, we have not hidden Toronto. We don't hide North Carolina. Uh, and when we were doing... Uh, a, a, a different show in Muskoka and Whistler, we don't hide it. We just figure if people can um, associate with the story, the story, that's really, it doesn't matter where it's set. And I actually learned that very quickly in the Australian market when I was there and I was at university and it was like they were t- putting out great stories, they just happened to be set in Australia. Mm. So um, we just look for the basic is, is that going to appeal to a wide majority of people. Are they going to want to associate with that? And I think the reason that Love It or List It got, everybody has a home. Most people have a home. I'm not going to, I don't want to get into third world countries, but, you know, that's where we hit. And all of our other programs, whether it's to do with um, health or whether it's to do with exercise or whether it's to do with food or whether it's to do with children or dogs or cats or whatever, we look for a common denominator that 
and the storytelling is where we come from. Karen, with regard to children's books? So for the most part, I would say we're similar in the sense that most of our books, it doesn't matter where they're set. So if it's a novel and it has to be, happens to be set in Canada, that's fine. I'm still comfortable selling it internationally um, as long as the, the story itself is universal enough. Mm-hmm. So a great story is a great story. And as long as the experiences, and to your point, you know, preschool is easier. Mm-hmm. As you get into the teenage years, it's, it's a little bit harder. Uh, we do, because it's, you know, the cost of entry for doing one book isn't as high as it is for a TV series. So we do actually have a small line of specifically Canadian books that we don't mind that we know we're going to sell enough of them in Canada that we can afford to do that and we don't have to worry about the fact that those aren't going to sell globally. I mean, we'll likely be able to sell um, French-Canadian rights, but you know, between English Canada and French Canada, we can make that work. So, you know, but for the global market, you know, we we do think very broadly about, you know, is there something obvious and easy to change that isn't going to impact the story or compromise the creator's uh, vision for the for the work that would tweak it just enough that it would make it easier to sell in the international market. We'll always have that conversation with the creator. Ultimately, it's their choice. It's their book. It's their content. There's another way to look at Canadian, too. I mean, we we um, we look at the artists that we use yeah. who, are, mm-hmm. who are creating the content as well. Yeah. I mean, Canada is in a very enviable position mm-hmm. around the world. We, we generate probably the biggest batch of, of animators every That's year. True. They're working around the world. They're working on amazing projects. And some of them wants to come home and, and work with us. And I think... That's where I think we can be really proud of, of having a Canadian, you know, production where where we have world class talents who are Canadian working on the show. Not necessarily about the topic, but it's also, yeah. um, you know, and, and we're not making enough animators. In fact, mm-hmm. we're always, you know, we're always looking for 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 more. So I think that's another approach, another way we look at, you know, creating Canadian content as well is the talent base that we can keep here. Um, I think we have time for about uh, another one question. Anyone in the audience? Oh, oh we'll just get you a, a microphone and, so we can hear you. Hi, I'm just wondering if there's a market for graphic novels that's growing. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Short answer is yes. I mean, in the U.S., for absolutely, like the market for comics and graphic novels in the U.S. is is pretty strong, even for young children. Uh, In the rest of the world, it really varies market by market. It is one of those, that is a format that is, you know, you'll meet with a publisher. France, not a problem. They have a long history of comics, the bande dessinée and all of that. Um, The UK, tougher. Germany, not so much. Uh, But it, it it really varies territory by territory. We are publishing comics, and we are selling them internationally, but it's it's harder slogging than it is for preschool, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's it. So we'll uh, I'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you uh, to our panelists. Very interesting. So differences but commonalities. Uh, that was appreciated. And thank you everyone for coming out this morning. And I think we have a few minutes afterwards. Uh, I'd be pleased to meet. I'm sure you guys yeah. as well. Have a cup of coffee. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was good.